You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we like labeling things. Taxonomy is the branch of science concerned with classifications, and there used to be several inconsistent and conflicting systems of classification in use. Then came Carl Linnaeus and his influential Systema Naturae in 1735, laying down the system we use to this day. Linnaeus was the first taxonomist to list humans as a primate, though he did classify whales as fish. Years later, a New York State court agreed with him. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Right here at the top of the show is where I introduce what the topic will be today, normally with some kind of lead-in, and I can't think of any for this episode. I can't even think of a good way to explain the topic. It's like court cases where someone was trying to prove their thing was not, in fact, that thing. See, not a great way to sum it up. So I'll try to distract you from all that with Dungeons & Dragons stats explained with tomatoes. Strength is being able to crush a tomato. Dexterity is being able to dodge a tomato. Intelligence is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting a tomato in a fruit salad. Charisma is being able to sell a tomato-based fruit salad. So that's more clear, but it does raise a rather mad and, for some, maddening question. Is the tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Well, yes, it's both. But actually, no. Botanically, it's a fruit, but legally, it's a vegetable. A fruit is technically the seed-bearing structure of a plant, whereas a vegetable can be really any part of the plant that we eat. Things must have been slow in the March of 1893, because this definition was set down by the Supreme Court of the United States. The issue at hand was tariffs, specifically a 10% tariff on the import of vegetables into the U.S. Just veggies, imported fruit, were not taxed. This was of particular interest to one John Nix of Manhattan. He ran a produce wholesale business along with his four sons and found himself the proud owner of an enormous tariff bill on a shipment of Caribbean tomatoes. John Nixon Company were one of the largest sellers of produce in New York City at the time, and one of the first companies to bring the Empire State produce from such far-flung places as Florida and Bermuda. Nix disputed the tax on the ground that tomatoes were, scientifically supportably, a fruit. Full of seeds, ain't they? That's the part that seems to turn grown adults into fussy toddlers anytime their burger contains a tomato despite their very clear instructions otherwise. Worse than the anti-pickle crowd, if you ask me. 
Anyway, Nix filed a lawsuit against Edward L. Hedden, collector of the Port of New York, to get his tax money back that he'd been forced to pay under protest. The crux of Nix's case was the same as the opening line of an uninspired speech. Council read definitions for the words fruit, vegetable, and tomato from Webster's Dictionary, Worcester's Dictionary, and the Imperial Dictionary. Good enough for me. Judgment for the plaintiff. Case closed. But wait, there's more. Defendant's counsel then read into evidence the definitions for pea, eggplant, cucumber, squash, and pepper. Oh, it's on now. To counter this, the plaintiff's side now read in the definitions of potato, turnip, parsnip, cauliflower, cabbage, carrot, and bean. That's when I assume all hell broke loose in the courtroom, and maybe a giant musical number broke out. This is really a very boring and tedious case. I'm just trying to jazz it up a little bit. Nix's side also called two witnesses, not botanists or linguistics experts, but men who had a lot of years in the fruit and veg business, to say whether these words had any special meaning in trade or commerce different from those read. The Supreme Court decided to look more practically and less pedantically at the situation and ruled that it's how a tomato is used that makes it a vegetable, not the official scientific definition. If people cook and eat them as vegetables, then vegetables they must be, and so subject to the tariff. Botanically speaking, tomatoes are the fruit of a vine, just as are cucumbers, squashes, beans, and peas, wrote Justice Horace Gray in his 1893 opinion. But in the common language of the people, whether sellers or consumers of provisions, all these are vegetables. What was really important about Nix's case was the timing. We're talking late Victorian era, after the age of sale had been obviated by steam power from the Industrial Revolution. You might have heard about it. It was in all the papers. Ships could now cross the Atlantic in one or two weeks, rather than the six to twelve weeks it had taken a century prior. Foods from the tropics could now reach New England in a week or less, making their import a viable option. This was when bananas went from being expensive oddity to must-have trend to staple of every grocery store. Though that was the Gros Michel banana, the one that our fake banana flavor is actually based on, not the Cavendish banana that we have today, but that's a story for another day. To service the evolving tastes of urban populations, a new class of national wholesaler, like the Nixes, were born. The tomato's identity crisis was far from settled, though. In 1937, the League of Nations, precursor to the UN, sought to classify various goods for the purpose of tariffs, and they too labeled tomatoes a vegetable, putting them under the heading of vegetables, edible plants, roots, and tubers. Not to be left out, the U.S. Department of Agriculture agreed, citing the 1893 case. But if there is a rule, there will be exceptions, holdouts, outliers, and just plain contrarians. Tennessee and Ohio made the tomato their state fruit. If you think that's silly, you might want to swallow your coffee before I tell you the state vegetable for Oklahoma 
is the watermelon. I do not care to look into their reasoning. The EU went a step further with a directive in December of 2001 classifying tomatoes as fruit. Along with rhubarb, carrots, sweet potatoes, cucumbers, pumpkins, and melons. It's bad enough that all prepackaged fruit bowls have some form of melon in them, which causes me instant reverse peristalsis. But if you gave me a fruit salad with friggin' cucumbers in it, I have a parking lot and I'll fight you in it. But I think I'll give the last word to George Ball of the Burpees Seed and Plant Company. Are tomatoes fruit? Of course. Are they vegetables? You bet. Though Burpees does put vegetable on the seed packet. So maybe it's not settled after all. Maybe things that come from nature are just too ephemeral for man's taxonomy. Things are a lot simpler when we're talking about man-made goods, things that don't grow on trees. And it's only a tragedy that you can't plant an entire orchard of Jaffa cake trees. For those whose life has not yet contained this joy, a Jaffa cake is a little round of dense yellow cake, or sponge, as they say in the home counties, with a disc of orange jelly on top enrobed in chocolate. It is so good. You can sometimes find them in bigger grocery stores like Kroger and Publix if they have a large enough international aisle to stock Branston pickle alongside the pad thai sauce and tahine. The issue here is again taxes, but this time it's VAT. For those who don't speak British, VAT, or value-added tax, is a type of consumption tax that is placed on a product whenever value is added at a stage of production and at final sale. Basically, sales tax cranked to 11. VAT is a tax that is paid by everyone involved with the product, as well as the consumer. As I go to air, the VAT in the UK right now is 20%. So if you're a UK-based widget maker, you pay 20% VAT on the price of the raw materials. When you sell the widgets wholesale to a store, the retailer pays VAT on that sale. Then when someone comes into their shop to buy one of your cutting edge widgets, they pay VAT too. As with most areas in life, there are exceptions. A number of things are subjected to a reduced 5% rate and some things are exempt altogether. The exemptions are for the really necessary things, like mobility aids, menstrual hygiene products, stamps, end-of-life care, and most food, including cake. That is some grade A foreshadowing right there. But some foods are just so wonderful, they absolutely must be taxed and taxed fully. Such luxury items include alcohol, mineral water, confectioneries, and with the specificity that governments just seem to love, chocolate-covered biscuits. Regular biscuits are apparently basic essentials. No American listeners not like buttermilk biscuits, you know that. Even I'd have to think twice about covering one of those in chocolate, whereupon I would do it. I could make that work. You're talking to a chick that once made a startlingly good roasted garlic and Parmesan ice cream. I married Italian. What are you going to do? No, British biscuits are cookies. And British listeners, don't at me on social media 
Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, with the definition of biscuit because you know y'all are not consistent with it. The only word that's more confusing is pudding. Is it a dessert course, a sausage with 80% blood, a flambéed Christmas dessert, or a suet dough stuffed with beef and vegetables steamed for eight hours? While I'm on British language, Cockney rhyming slang, can we talk about that? It has got to be the worst single. The McVitie's company had a notion otherwise. They appealed, prompting a customs and exchange VAT tribunal. Jaffa Cakes, they said, shouldn't be taxed at the most food 20% rate, but at the 5% rate of chocolate-covered biscuits. It takes a lot of brass to make that claim when you yourself called the product Jaffa Cakes in the first place. According to the website of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the court had to establish first a legal definition of what made a cake a cake and what makes a biscuit a biscuit, before determining which column Jaffa Cakes belonged in. Jaffa Cakes were assessed with the following criteria. The product name, ingredients, texture, structure, the size, how the product is sold, and how it's marketed. To this end, the main argument on behalf of the Office of Customs and Excise were that Jaffa Cakes were the approximate size and shape of a biscuit, stocked on the shelves next to the biscuits, and, owing in no small part to McVitie's own marketing, people eat them in the sort of contexts where they might eat a biscuit. McVitie's countered by stating that Jaffa cakes are baked in a manner similar to and of the same base ingredients as a cake. Their masterstroke, though, was staleness. Cakes go hard when they go stale, and biscuits go soft. When Jaffa cakes go stale, though it's hard to imagine them sitting around long enough to do that, they go hard. Their lawyers actually left a bunch of them out to go stale and brought them into court as evidence. And in a legal tactic I'd like to see more often, McVitie's baked a big old 12-inch version of a Jaffa cake to show that if you blew it up to the size of a regular cake, it would just be a regular cake. If I were on the other side of it, I would have made a very big deal out of the name. But the judge presiding over the case, Mr. D.C. Potter, ruled that to be of no serious relevance because a product's name often has little to do with its actual function. Hot dog, anyone? In the end, the court decided that the Jaffa cake is, in fact, a cake. And the Irish Revenue Commissioners agreed, though their ruling was based on the Jaffa cake's moisture content being greater than 12%. So, no VAT on Jaffa cakes, which means we can buy more of them. Hooray! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Big thanks and kudos to everyone who has gone to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, which takes you right over to our Public store where you can buy a t-shirt in support of the people of Ukraine with the now famous phrase from the Snake Island Defenders. But don't worry, it's written in Ukrainian, so you can probably get away with it in public. And every cent I get from that, plus the same over again in my own money, goes to the Ukraine Red Cross. So hit up yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. And it doesn't have to be a t-shirt. Same goes for anything you get the Ukraine design on. I also want to share some love for the people who share love with me by reviewing the show. And this is the last review that I have to read. So if you want to hear your opinion read on the air, leave a review on your podcast player of choice or at Podchaser. I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but Loao1981 says, I've been a humble fan of Moxie's podcast ever since I accidentally bumped into her pineapple episode. That was a good one. Admittedly, I only follow four podcasts, but this is my absolute favorite. I'm also a fan of the audiobook. Personally, I can't do regular books as they put me to sleep, so I rely solely on audiobooks for new inspiration. The audiobook version of this book follows Moxie's usual format of finding the tiniest details about a topic, while smoothly transitioning to similar topics. I'm sure she'll come out with a second book in the near future. Well, from your lips to the ears of the Mango Publishing Company. In 1882, entrepreneur Jacob Luce bought a biscuit and candy company that would eventually be known as Sunshine Biscuits, a name that's still around today as the maker of Cheez-Its, which my ex-husband went through at least a box a week by himself, dipping it in port wine cheese spread, no less. That's about as close as he got to a balanced diet, to be honest with you. In 1908, Sunshine Biscuits launched a cream-filled chocolate sandwich biscuit known as Hydrox. The name, Luce thought, would be reminiscent of sparkling sunlight and evoke an impression of cleanliness, maybe because it sounds like a disinfectant. This was, after all, only a few years since the Pure Food and Drug Act, before which your canned veggies might be full of borax and your milk could be a watered-down concoction of chalk dust and cow brain, and you would have no way of knowing. Some tellings of the history have it that Hydrox is a portmanteau of hydrogen and oxygen, the elements that make up water, the gold standard of purity. Etymology aside, the fact was that there actually was a Hydrox chemical company in business at that time one that sold hydrogen peroxide, 
and was caught up in a trademark lawsuit over the word Hydrox. All of which arguably should have encouraged them to send the name back to committee. Hydrox Chemical Lawsuit, by the way, pointed out that the word Hydrox was already in use for such disparate things as soda, coolers, and ice cream. So maybe Jacob Luce figured, the word was out there, might as well use it. For four years, Hydrox cookies, with their lovely embossed flower design, made cash registers ring for sunshine biscuits. Then, almost 90 years to the day of this episode dropping, the National Biscuit Company came along. You probably know them by their shortened name, Nabisco, with the launch of three different cookies, the Mother Goose Biscuit, the Veronese Biscuit, and the Oreo. The cookies were very similar to Hydrox, with Oreos even being embossed by the same kind of production machine. But Hydrox was said to have a better crunch, sweeter filling, and less sweet cookie. Like VHS versus Beta, which you can learn more about in the Your Brain on Facts book or audiobook, look for the chapter Veteran of the Format Wars, the newcomer soon came to dominate the landscape, and there's not really a clear reason why. It's literally the best-selling cookie in the world, with 3.28 billion with a B in sales in the U.S. alone. They sell 92 million cookies a day throughout 100-plus countries under the parent brand Mondelez International. That ubiquity has led a lot of people to erroneously assume that Oreo is the original and Hydrox is the Mr. Pibb to their Dr. Pepper. Hydrox was not without its adherents, particularly in areas with significant Jewish or Muslim populations, because the original Oreo filling contained lard from pigs, whereas the Hydrox did not. Nabisco would later have to invest a lot of money and resources in replacing the lard with shortening in the 90s. Sunshine was purchased by Keebler in 1996, who replaced Hydrox with a reformulated product called Droxies, which 1,000% sounds like drug slang for a veterinary tranquilizer. Keebler was acquired in turn by Kellogg's in 2001, and Kellogg's yanked Droxies from the shelves before adding a similar sandwich cookie to the famous Amos brand, then discontinuing them. In August 2008, on the cookie's 100th anniversary, Kellogg's resumed distribution of Hydrox under the Sunshine label. A limited distribution. One and done. Hydrox heads, I don't know what they actually call themselves, besieged Kellogg's with phone calls and petitions, asking that Hydrox be brought back for good, but all for naught. Less than a year later, Kellogg's had removed Hydrox from their website. This is a dark time in cookie history, wrote one enthusiast. And for those of you who would say, get over it, it's only a cookie, you have not lived until you have tasted a Hydrox. As of the time of writing, I have apparently not lived as I've never had one, but I'll see if I can lay my hands on some before this goes to air. Getting my hands on some may be a touch trickier than it should be. They exist, that's not the issue. In 2015, entrepreneur Elia Kassoff, 
a lover of Hydrox who knew the tricks involved in getting a trademark someone else had allowed to lapse, was able to pick up Hydrox for his own company, Leaf Brands, itself a dormant brand that Kassoff had revived. Hip to the times, Leaf Brands made Hydrox available on Amazon so anyone anywhere could get them whenever they wanted, plus two days for delivery. These new Hydrox weren't going to bow gracefully to the dominant Oreo. Their website points out that they use real cane sugar instead of high-fructose corn syrup, with no hydrogenated oils, artificial flavors, or GMO ingredients. And further warns consumers, don't eat a knockoff. Hydrox are also made in the USA, while Mondelez International was laying off U.S. workers. Sales of Hydrox grew by 2,400% from 2016 to 2017, amassing more than $492,000 in sales, leagues behind their competitor, but impressive progress nonetheless. If you ask Leaf Brands, they'd be doing a lot better if not for Mondelez. Not out-competing them, deliberately sabotaging them. This is the hard-to-find bit. In August 2018, Leaf Brands filed a lawsuit against Mondelez International seeking $800 million in damages because of lost sales and reputation. The suit claims that Mondelez was using its massive industry muscle to, quote, place their own products in favorable locations in stores and move competitors to less desirable positions on store shelves. On their Facebook page, you can see pictures of grocery stores where Hydrox cookies are hidden behind other displays, pushed to the back of the shelf, and even turned sideways so the short end with no printing on it is facing out. If you've never worked grocery retail, your instinct may be to blame the store staff, but a lot of brands are actually stocked by the manufacturer or their own distributor. Ever pass a guy in a Pepsi polo shirt with a hand truck loaded with soda? That, but with cookies. And it's not just their own products that they stock. Mondelez is what's called a category captain by dint of its size in the industry, meaning they get to determine much of the layout for the whole cookie aisle. Leaf alleges that Mondelez employees and agents are deliberately making Hydrox harder to find while making Oreos hurt near impossible to miss. This is far from the first lawsuit over Oreos. A class action suit was filed claiming that the manufacturer misled buyers by stating that the product contains real cocoa. The judge dismissed that case. And they were sued for fudge-covered mint Oreos not containing any actual fudge. The plaintiffs claimed that the cookies didn't contain any milk fat from dairy, a key component of fudge, but rather cheaper palm and palm kernel oil. And as so often happens, there are 1,100 articles from the week the case was filed and nothing on the outcome. That's actually what happened with the whole reason this story's in the episode at all. I was dead sure that I remembered Hydrox and Oreo going to court in maybe the 90s over the basic infringement question and Hydrox losing. But I couldn't turn up anything 
because of the sabotage lawsuit sucking up all the search results. It's not all foodie fact fun today. I'm going to risk a copyright strike to play 15 seconds of a song that will make everyone near me in age go, oh yeah. For the young or those who actually had social lives in high school, that's the theme song to the 90s X-Men cartoon, and it slaps, as the kids used to say. For the truly uninitiated, and come on, even my mom knows who the X-Men are, the story centers on a group of superheroes who get their powers from genetic mutations and government experiments because they're aliens. Come on, it's a comic book, what do you want? Ever since their introduction to the Marvel Universe in 1963, the X-Men have always had to deal with questions about their humanity. While their enemies would stop at nothing to cast them as monsters, the team continued to fight for a world where they would be treated like everyone else. That's in-universe. In the broader reality of reality, it's in the X-Men's best interest not to be considered humans. Well, Marvel Comics' financial bottom line, anyway, and they went to court to prove it. In 1993, international trade lawyers Sherry Singer and Indy Singh found an interesting provision in a book of federal tariff classifications. Dolls are taxed at 12% on import, while toys are only taxed 6.8%. The devil is in the details, or in this case, the definition. A toy can be any shape, representing anything, but a doll can only be a representation of a human being, like Barbie or G.I. Joe. Singer and Singh knew this distinction could have a sizable financial benefit for their client, Marvel Entertainment, who had an ownership stake in the Toy Biz toy company at the time. For years, Marvel had been importing action figures that were taxed as dolls, despite their wide panoply of brightly colored characters, often being anything but human-looking. Taking a direct approach, the two lawyers gathered up a literal bag full of action figures and went to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection headquarters in D.C. to try to convince them that Marvel wasn't importing human-like dolls, but instead very non-human toys. The customs staffer's reaction to the bag of toys was not recorded, but their official response was that the non-human characteristics of the X-Men and other action figures fall far short of transforming them into something other than the human beings which they represent. Singer and Sing were locked onto this tactic, though, and pursued it for a decade. A judge considered various figures from Marvel's whole line to determine whether or not individual characters were human. Rippling pecs, blue skin, red eyes, all were scrutinized, as lawyers on both sides expostulated on the philosophical ramifications of what it means to be human. How can these action figures be human, they argued, if they have tentacles, wings, or robotic limbs? I would love to have been there to hear people with expensive educations in sharply tailored suits 
stand before a learned jurist in a wood-paneled courtroom and say things like, Kingpin is known to have exceedingly great strength, however naturally achieved, and the figure itself has a large and stout body with a disproportionately small head and disproportionately large hands. Even though dolls can be caricatures of human beings, the court is of the opinion that the freakishness of the figure's appearance, coupled with the fabled Spider-Man storyline to which it belongs, does not warrant a finding that the figure represents a human being. And they hadn't even seen the way they drew Kingpin for Into the Spider-Verse. Just felt like it was a completely different art style to the rest of the characters. In 2003, Judge Judith Barzillay ruled that Marvel characters aren't quite human enough to be taxed as dolls. They are more than or different than humans. These fabulous characters use their extraordinary and unnatural physical and psychic powers on the side of either good or evil. The figures, shapes, and features, as well as their costumes and accessories, are designed to communicate such powers. Yay, a victory for the giant multi-million dollar corporation. But a slap in the face to die-hard X-Men fans. Chuck Austin, one of the writers for Uncanny X-Men at the time, said his whole goal in writing the story was to show the team's humanity. The nerds grew restless, and Marvel had to issue a statement that read, Don't fret, Marvel fans. Our heroes are living, breathing human beings, but humans who have extraordinary abilities. A decision that the Marvel figures indeed do have non-human characteristics further proves our characters have special, out-of-this-world powers. I was going to hire somebody on Fiverr to read that as Stan Lee, but the base rate was 20 bucks, and let's be honest, it wasn't a cute enough idea for 20 bucks. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. To protect the public from contaminated oil, New York state law required that all fish oil be inspected and branded, with a penalty of $25 per barrel for those who failed to comply. Samuel Judd purchased three barrels of whale oil that had not been inspected, and James Maurice, a fish oil inspector, wanted to collect the penalty from him. Judd pleaded that the barrels contain whale oil, not fish oil, and were not subject to the legislation. At trial, one side said the term fish oil was commonly understood to include whale oil, and the other side pled the obvious science that whales are mammals. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes and returned a verdict in favor of the fish oil inspector. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.